0: Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Goof is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about Hi-Fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest.
1: Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today, we have uh, Doug Schneider, founder of Soundstage Network, and the Brent Butterworth with us. Um, Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, I guess just to start, Brent, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your history in audio.
0: Sure. Um, I... Uh, well, most notably, I wrote for about 10 years. I was uh, Soundstage's headphone correspondent, and uh, I was uh, editor-in-chief of Home Theater Magazine, senior editor of Video Magazine. I uh, was marketing director for Dolby. uh was a sound division contributing editor for, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years. Uh, written for a lot of other people, and uh, also was the uh, former cigar writer for Rob Report. Very cool.
1: So I I guess part of the reason why I wanted to ask you that right off the bat is to kind of establish um, a level of trust in what you're about to say and how that conversation is going to go when it comes to speaker measurements. You know what you're talking about.
0: Well, I started doing... You can write for all these publications and not know anything about measurements. I mean, most people (laughs) that write for these publications don't know anything about measurements. But uh, maybe not soundstage, but most of them. But um, I started measuring speakers in 1997. And... um, have been at it pretty much ever since, and uh, uh, measured headphones for about ten years. Still do it on occasion. I, I also, I currently write for Wirecutter, where I do measurements of uh, lots of audio stuff. Um, I was one of the, um, I was one of the, the leading people pushing the the CTA twenty ten subwoofer measurement standard. I uh, didn't create it, but I was one of the three or four people that really kind of picked it up and. Uh, And and championed it and kind of codified it a lot better. And in fact, I kind of wrote what's become the industry manual for it. And switching over to our other guest, Doug Schneider. Doug, uh,
1: you're obviously the founder of Soundstage Network. uh, But tell us a little bit about your history with measuring uh, speakers and all that fun stuff. I've got a, quite a bit of
2: experience with measuring speakers and that I got us the contract with um, National Research Council, which is just a few miles from my home, to measure speakers there. And that came actually through an interview with Paul Barton. I went there to interview Paul Barton. He's known for going there since the early 70s and using the lab, the anechoic chamber for all his measurements, designs for his speakers. And he said, why don't you measure speakers? That would really add you know, a lot to your reviews. And I said, how would I do that? And he said, I'll introduce you to the guys. And I had a meeting with uh, René Saint-Denis, who was the technical person there. I can't remember who the head of acoustics was, but we had a contract in hand, signed it, and we've been measuring speakers there since 1999. I think the first ones we published were in 2000. And so I've had a hand in measuring all those speakers. I work with a technical person there who always makes sure the chamber's set up right and they do the measurements, actually, but I'm always there bringing the speakers in, helping them get set up, deciding where we're going to measure them, how we're going to measure them, to what level, whatnot. So I'm familiar with pretty
1: much every set of speakers we measured. So any set of speakers that goes through Soundstage that gets measurements is presumably going through your hands at some point to go through the NRC, the National Research Council and all of that.
2: Yeah, I take them there in batches is what I do to keep we be there's there was kind of a myth that we get this all done free. And that's not true. We uh, pay quite a bit for it. But um, the way I keep the cost down is we do them in batches. So I'll go there with three to five speakers that will measure in a day. say.
1: Okay. And now that we've established that we're with two gentlemen that know a whole lot about measuring technology <laughs> and yeah. a whole lot about uh, the speaker technology in general. I, I guess I'll open it up with a very basic question, which is, why would you bother measuring speakers or headphones at all? Let's let Brent go with that. I want to hear what he has to say.
0: Okay,
2: <laughs> then I, then <laughs> well, I'll chime in because I have I have my own thoughts on that, and they've been evolving
0: over the years. But go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll I'll actually uh, I'll start by by paraphrasing something Doug said and lots of other people have said, but Doug says it a lot, is that, you know, anybody can like any set of speakers or headphones. And I'll, I'll kind of make it more aggressive and say, you know, any random dude can listen to a set of speakers or headphones or whatever and go like, oh, I like these. So what does that mean? Well, nothing. Um, fortunately, we do have a lot of good research out there uh, a lot of that research was actually done in the same chamber that Doug uses for speaker measurements. And a lot of people don't understand how all the research was done. Um, what they did was they did panel tests of, they, it didn't start with measurements. It started with, with panel tests of, you know, blind listening tests where people listen to speakers or headphones and reported on which ones they liked the best. And then they measured all those speakers and headphones to find if there was anything that correlated in the measurements with the ones that people liked. And they found, like with speakers, they found that people generally like a flat on-axis response and a nice, smoothly degrading, high-frequency response as you move off-axis, right? And with headphones, there's a certain curve that people tend to like. Doesn't mean everybody's going to like it, but most people will like it and at least if you can so so if people like, you know, me and Doug do some measurements and we see that uh, uh, some headphones or some speakers are way outside the norm, we can report that. Doesn't mean people won't like them, but it yeah. means like, you know, take a if you're going to buy this thing, take a serious look at it. And it also shows in my view <sighs> whether or not the manufacturer is an outlier. And in some cases, look, in some cases, these manufacturers don't know what they're doing. And the, the, the point to really hammer in here is that this is all based on listening People don't, I mean, there. Are, I, I think there are probably some people that measure in an abstract sense and go like, well, I think this thing should measure this way because of whatever my preconceptions are. But the good research that's been done, you know, ties the measurements directly to what people have said they like to hear. So, and another thing is it also kind of tells you if the reviewer likes a lot of stuff that measures really weird, you're kind of like... I'm not sure this reviewer really knows what they're doing.
1: Interesting. So maybe if they like the same weirdness, so let's say a speaker measures uh, higher in the treble frequencies, mm-hmm. so it's measuring bright, and they always seem to like the same speakers that always seem to measure bright. You just like bright speakers. But if right. you if you start liking speakers that measure bright and ones that measure completely flat or, or something else, then it's mm-hmm. kind of like, is this a credible individual for for reviewing
0: right i mean i remember there was a a publication that ran a uh, that does measurements not soundstage that ran a review of like a tannoy speaker and the uh this speaker had a you know the treble was elevated by four decibels roughly above about Uh, uh, basically above the crossover point, above, you know, three kilohertz or something. And the writer just raved about how great it was. And the measurements clearly show this giant treble boost. And at that point you have to, and you know, a four dB treble boost. I mean, I think most of us kind of know what that sounds like. You turn your, if you have a tone control, you turn your tone control up by a, a pretty good margin. That's what that sounds like. And the writer did not notice it. So you have to go like, huh maybe this guy's not such a great reviewer or at least he's not consistent. Um, Consistency is the key there, I think. It it really is. And there's just, you know, anybody... Look, I mean... I I was going to say anybody can be a reviewer. It's like at this point, anybody is a reviewer. There's so many people on YouTube and there's so many people who chime in, who, who do reviews on different forums. And there's just so many people reviewing audio equipment. How many people have actually ever done a blind test? How many of these people actually know what they can hear and what they can't hear? And not many of them. Really, really, most of them are extremely inexperienced. And I really wish that would be kind of a dream of mine to do a bunch of blind testing and, and then let people really start to understand what they can hear. But right now, we've got anybody who wants to be a reviewer is a reviewer and can start mouthing off about this stuff. And some of them are great. And most of them are not. Interesting. Now, Doug, anything to add?
1: Anything to to kind of uh, tweak in terms of? Yeah, I have my my view of measurements that has been evolving over the years. But I'll say I will say one thing: I fully agree with
2: Brent with what they a basic set of measurements can do. And when I say basic, frequency response, impedance, sensitivity, that sort of thing, is tell you competence of a design. Uh, you, if you see some real anomalies there. Um, They'll come out in those those very basic measurements. And that to me, for the user point of view, is probably maybe the most valuable thing. And for example, I, I there was a really terrible company that since out of business, but they sent up a speaker and we may happen to measure the impedance first. Sometimes it's last, sometimes it's first, but it was a half an ohm through most of the frequency band. And I'm like, <laughs> do you realize your speaker is a half an ohm? And they're like, is it? Let's send another model. Okay, they obviously have no idea. And just know, half an ohm is like a punishing load for any amplifier. Okay, so it's a short that's a circuit, circuit, basically. It's a short circuit, basically. Or you know, we we're talking about sensitivity. Oh, we've got this high sensitivity speaker. How loud somebody something will play, given a certain input, and you specify some certain high sensitivity, and it's a low sensitivity, and either the manufacturer doesn't know what they're talking about or they're lying. So it, it basic measurements like that. Outside of the sound, like how compatible the thing is with the rest of your system, are really valuable in a basic set of measurements. Okay, so, you know, you could probably liken it to other things, but these tires won't go on this car kind of thing. We can measure them, they won't go in there. It's kind of just the basics. So, impedance, sensitivity, general frequency response. If you see a really, really, really gross anomaly or super high distortion, and we had that out of a loudspeaker uh, the other week. I'm like, this distortion looks way, way, way too high. And the speaker hadn't been listened to first and I wasn't the one listening to it. Somebody else would be listening to it. And I called the manufacturer. I said, I think we might have a problem here. And the manufacturer said, yeah, that should not be. So uh, you could have really high distortion and somebody not knowing what they're doing, but this actually was a faulty product. Something happened in shipping. Uh, The crossover was damaged, I guess. And they got us replacement and it measured more normally. So Outside of what something sounds like, they can show you the quality of the design, the competence of the design, consistency of the design. This is important. Do two speakers measure the same? And this is really hard to do. We talked about this, that you could have different measuring speakers out of the same pair. And that's aside from the sound quality. Now, in terms of sound, uh, yeah, so where we measure is where Dr. Floyd Toole basically did all his research. The National Research Council, the, the chamber was updated after Toole left, but it's the same lab and facility and that. And a lot of the equipment dates back to the 70s and it's still working. And Toole there did a massive amount of listening. They had a uh, IEC standard listening room at the time and an average listening room that a house would be. In, and they had measurements and they correlated the listening with the measurements. And the, the thing was to get a handle on where there some basic measurements that came out that correlated with listening. And uh, Brent summarized them. And I think low distortion was in there as well. I'll add that. So, but generally flat frequency response. And as I said, generally... Uh, sloping treble consistency, off-axis, and low distortion, among other things. You know, and then companies have figured out other things. So, the, so there were some basic measurements, but how far you take those things. So when I mentioned we started measurements in 1999, 2000, and that time I've got a background in computers so I can understand technical topics, but I knew nothing about speaker measurements. So I had to learn about speaker measurements. And to do so, I I traveled to a number of companies that do extensive measurements to talk to their engineers about it. And they all said, all of them, this is great, you're doing these measurements, this will be helpful you're doing these measurements. You'll have a better set of measurements than any magazine is currently providing. And Stereophile, I think, was the only magazine providing measurements, but don't try to interpret them because there are two problems. One is you need a lot more measurements than any of these guys are taking and even what you're taking, which are better than anybody else's, to really properly interpret down to what the person is really hearing like really hearing. And then also, you not only have to have the data, you have to have the knowledge. You can look at this and say, oh, it's going to sound this, it's going to sound this, it's going to sound, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, that gets complex because, yeah. You know, Paul Barton, a PSV speaker, has said this once, you know, measuring electronics is a two-dimensional problem. An amplifier makes a signal bigger. Little signal goes in, big signal comes out. But- a speaker That electrical signal comes in and a three-dimensional signal comes out. Suddenly, sound is radiated out of multiple drivers into a room that's reflecting all over the place. Understanding that output from those measurements and how that will affect the listener takes a Floyd tool like person to really know. And you have a lot of people who are just armchair quarterbacking on an assessment of measurements and I see that audio all the time on audio science review and I used to contribute there and I I just had it with with what they were saying I'm like a you guys are interpreting the measurements not everybody there a, a, a few people there their illustrious leader um you're looking at the measurements before you're listening, which is completely the wrong thing to do. And second is, I'm like, you guys are going wild ass on your interpretations here. You are making all kinds of guesses. You haven't listened to the speaker. You're making judgments on these very good measurements you're taking. Yes, you have a lot of data, but no way you're getting most of this right. And you're making assessments when really you should be doing more listening and then making those assessments. So I've Hmm. backed off what the measurements can tell us about listening.
1: And, and, and I think and, it kind of goes back to establishing that baseline to kind of show competencies and and to compare other products against one another. If you're measuring one speaker to another speaker, and let's say they're in the same price point, and one shows like a massive distortion, yeah. then maybe that's a good indication that for this value of money, this other speaker that doesn't have that same distortion might be a better bet for you. Might be. Might be. And might you got to listen. What do you think, Brent? What do you think about the whole listening thing? Uh, I'll tell you, um,
2: I don't know much about headphone measurements other than I mm-hmm. know some from all the stuff Brent's done and we have to format them and stuff and I can read them fairly well now. But what do you think about the listening and measurements, Brent? Well,
0: I, you know, if you're, if you're doing measurements, as you kind of pointed out before, uh, sometimes it's just a lot more practical to do a whole bunch in a batch and you can't do... Because you're doing, especially if you're doing them on your own at home, you're doing setup and teardown. And so in terms of the measurement system, you probably don't have it set up all the time. So for me, I tended to to measure headphones in batches and still do, and speakers and uh, everything I measure. It's pretty rare. I was measuring actually tv antennas this morning um (laughs) i was able to do one because it was pretty easy to set up but um usually i just do them a whole bunch in batches and i don't look that carefully at the measurements but i much prefer to listen to the product before i measure it i think it's just better and you know there are times when i actually don't prefer the product that i'm sort of supposed to prefer um a great example is campfire audio uh campfire audio is a interesting manufacturer in portland and they I'm make the guy. little headphones right the in-ear yeah, ear- earphones they make like well, one set of headphones but it's all basically in-ears yeah and, and it's so, like the wood ones the wood finish no they do uh well they, they do a bunch of different models but it, it's mostly yeah mostly done out of acrylic or whatever they make them out of uh and some metal but um The guy, Kim Ball, who runs the company is kind of like, hey, you know, we have a lot of different kind of customers and they like different kinds of sounds. And our customers are audio enthusiasts and they have opinions. And, you know, we want to make something that makes them happy. And so they have models that are pretty close to the Harman curve, which is, you know, the sort of the the generally accepted curve for quote unquote normal headphone response. Um, And they have some that stray outside of that. And there was one time when he sent me two, headphones that were, or earphones that were in basically the same price range and had a similar number of drivers and a similar, the physical design was the same more or less, but they were voiced differently. And he said, well, this one's like, you know, Harman curve and this one's not. And I actually kind of got them mixed up because I get so many products and I can't keep them all straight. And then I ran the measurements and the one that I assumed was Harmon curve, the one I liked actually was, was something of an outlier. Um, so I think, you know, in that case, you know, the, the listing was, was really important. And especially once you get, I, I sort of specialize in uh, measurements of really cheap stuff and, I'm Consumer gonna, level stuff. Maybe not the, but, the but ultra e- hi-fi. But even cheaper, even like like Bluetooth oh. speakers and things like that, I'll measure. Okay. And, uh, and you know, cheap earphones and, and God knows what. Stuff that very few people measure. Sound bars. Um, and once you start to get into the really low price points, there isn't really there's not a strong tie to the research because the research was generally done on speakers and headphones, was generally done with competent products, right? There weren't a lot of wacky, weird speakers in that. Um, whereas once you get into a Bluetooth speaker where it's got a built-in limiter, it may have a frequency-dependent limiter where it's doing more limiting in, say, the bass than elsewhere. So the the sound profile of the product changes as it plays louder. And that's mm-hmm. true of a lot of audio products, though. Um, and it may have some kind of dynamic processing in there. You don't know what's going on in a Bluetooth speaker because they're all DSP. And what the people did in there with the DSP, you just don't know. And they're also, they're all bass limited. So the manufacturers will start to do things to create the greater impression of bass. And you really have to listen to them. If If you try to measure them, you can find out some things, but we just don't have enough science on that. Um, and it's going to be hard. This is getting to be a problem with headphones too, because the headphones have so much DSP in them and they're getting to be, you know, sort of intelligent, like listening to the environment around you and 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 dynamically adjusting the sound to suit that. And, you know, how do you measure all that? It's, it's really getting to be complicated. So with traditional speakers and amps and, you know, traditional audio products, it's really easy to correlate the measurements with the... Uh, with listening tests, once you start to get in, into the cheap stuff where there's a, all sorts of crazy technology in it, it gets to be a lot harder. And yeah. you have to listen. You know, it, you brought up something that
1: is like really interesting to me. Um, is there a significant difference in measuring, on the speaker side, uh, an active set of speakers versus a passive set of speakers? And on the headphone side, is there a massive difference between measuring something like uh, true wireless versus measuring... Um, I don't know. Open ear, open back headphones
0: on the on the headphones. It is a a giant, colossal difference because the, <laughs> the problem that you start to get in there, you know, once you have a wireless product, um, you start to have to deal with latency, and mm. so it's going to be the signal is going to be delayed by you know typically two hundred, sometimes three hundred milliseconds from when the you know, after so it takes like two, two or three hundred milliseconds for it to come back to the analyzer. Since you know, from when the analyzer actually emitted it, so that's a big chunk, and the system has to has to do what's called gating, where it basically looks at the result that comes back and it records that, and then it can only look at a certain part of that. So you can say, well, only look at the parts from two hundred and forty milliseconds to. 500 milliseconds or whatever and you can figure out the frequency response but you start to get into more uncertainty and some of the better analyzers have done it i think a pretty good you know audio precision has done i think a pretty good job of getting around the latency problem but it's still an issue and it, it, it creates uncertainty and then of course you have all these earphones now with all this DSP have all these modes in them so you might have you might have 10 different EQ modes in there, in the app or in the in the earphones themselves, you might, and then you have noise cancelling off and on, and then you have variable noise cancelling, right? A lot of these things have multiple levels of noise cancelling, and some of them have dynamic noise cancelling where it automatically adjusts it, and the noise cancelling affects the frequency response of the earphones. So it gets to be a lot more complicated. With speakers, I think that with, with the kind of active speakers that Doug tends to do, which are basically... A traditional speaker with an amp built into it and probably and yeah, you know, and and some almost certainly some DSP and maybe digital crossovers or maybe not, maybe analog crossovers. But with those, the manufacturer is usually not doing a whole ton of DSP on it. And it's usually not going to be any kind of dynamic DSP. It's going to be a flat DSP curve, and they'll probably they'll all they'll definitely be like a some kind of of limiting in there to keep the speaker from blowing up. But, uh, you know, those are a lot easier to measure. I think, so if you go measure like the new ELAC, uh, what is it, the DCB41 or something, it's a really nice little $600 pair of powered speakers. You can measure that and get a a useful result. Whereas if you get a Bluetooth speaker where the thing is, the Sony Bluetooth speaker in, in particular, their one, they act very differently when you play them loud versus when you play them soft. And then... How many measurements can you take? How many can your how many can you you know f- figure out? You can make, take measurements at hundred volume levels, for example. And h- how do you crunch all that? So yeah, it becomes it gets, yeah
2: what I call characterizing the product. If I break yeah. uh, what what Brent said into two things, the actual measurements you do on these products with DSP active, whatever, they're the same sort of measurements, forgetting all the moats. Active speakers are easy, uh, relatively easy. Just put a lower level signal in because plain old active speakers, because um, they simply have the amplifier built in. So you give them a lower level signal. Sensitivity isn't a thing anymore because that's more for passive speakers, but you can measure all the same way and you won't have a problem. But when you get into a DSP speaker, we have the same problem. Ooh, there's a delay built into this speaker. And now the distortion analyzer can't understand the delay. And is it giving us the right results? So there's that problem and it's more of an equipment problem. But then there's all the modes and stuff. And how do you characterize the product? When there what are all mode these you modes. You, what mode do you choose? And you know, and maybe if there's two or three, that's fine. But like Brent said on these headphones, there's all kinds of modes and they're dynamically doing things. So, you know, they're sounding different at the different volume levels, or
1: you've set them to different things. So how do you characterize the product? <laughs> that's really the yeah. trick. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, This has been eye opening so far. Uh, We're going to take a quick little musical break and jump right back into it. get us back into it there's a lot of controversy about should we even bother measuring uh, speakers at all or how much weight should we put on speaker measurements so I guess to kind of talk about the controversy a little bit um, I should ask is this controversy about whether or not you should measure speakers uh, anything new or is there any new arguments for not doing this or is this kind of the same story that's been retold time and time again I would say Nothing of it is new. It goes back many years. There's no argument
2: for not doing it properly. What I would say, though, is you put a big caution symbol, read only so much into this. In many cases, Beaker measurements I'm mainly uh, the thing. And I'll go back to when I first started and I mentioned that the company said, do not, in- even though you've got a better set of measurements than anybody else is doing, do not make the same mistake that others are doing and putting an interpretation. And I've been approached many times over the years, criticized um, for not interpreting our measurements online. In other words, we we put them there. Here's the measurements, frequency response measurements, distortion measurements, impedance measurements. They're very factual. And there's a reason for that. I watched John Atkinson over the years with a limited set of measurements, interpret them, and in my opinion, not always get him right, but that's not really as much his fault in the sense of he's got a limited set of measurements. But it ends up saying, well, here he is trying to interpret a limited set of measurements, and the reviewer didn't hear that. These measurements don't line up. Throw it all in the garbage. No, 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 no. They may have lined up. They may not have. This is a limited set of measurements that probably should have never been interpreted they should have been presented, but not as interpreted as deeply. And I've told you on that. I, I will not go there and put myself out to interpret a set of measurements that I'm not sure of. Because you know what? I'm sure nobody's sure of it. Paul Barton can interpret a set of measurements better than anyone In the world. And he's complimented me saying, Hey, you can interpret a set of measurements as well as any reviewer ever has. But even he will look at a set of measurements and then say, Geez, we better listen to this before we make an assessment. Or this should sound like this. Did it? He'll never be emphatic. And that's my big problem with audio science review. They got a very exhaustive set of measurements, but there are a few people there who are making very definitive. This is going to sound like this. I'm looking at the measurements and decided what it's going to sound like before. No, you're not even sure at all. It's easy to put big mouth comments out there. It's easy, easy just to say shit. Let's back it up with some proof. Let's listen first.
1: Let's do it blind And, and outside of the speakers. So in the headphones, uh, Brent, you'd probably (laughs) know this quite a bit more is like, is the same variance there? Like, uh, do people try and interpret the, the measurements of headphones to essentially say something, um, maybe make their subjective opinion almost objective?
0: It's much worse in headphones. Um, with speakers, you know, I can look at a measurement and tell you, all right, that's not going to sound too bad. I can't necessarily tell you which one I'm going to prefer, but I can look at the measurement and go, this speaker doesn't suck. And some reviewer says this speaker sucks. He's an idiot. So, right, but you're
2: not going to say, here's what
0: he's going to hear. You can kind of right. say, okay, this is in the ballpark. Now well, let's go listen. A, if it's got a four, a four or five dB boost in the travel. I can tell okay, you that no, the he, reviewer's he, got his he, ears screwed on straight. It's going to sound bright. Yeah, he <laughs> should on. hear this. He should hear um, this. Yeah, but with headphones, since you, I think with with speakers you know, what you hear is partly influenced by the room. And I think rooms have a sort of ameliorating effect on speaker flaws. So, you know, if you actually measure what a speaker does in a room and just take a single measurement from a microphone, not averaged or anything like that, and you look at the frequency response, it's going to be different. And then if you move that microphone, it's going to be different still. So rooms tend to, in my view, average out some of the problems. With headphones, those suckers are clamped to your head. There is nothing to come between you and that driver except for a little baffle and or, or a tube in the case of earphones um and so i think that the interactions of the different frequencies have in my view my opinion a stronger psychoacoustic effect and what i mean by that is if you this is very well-known among, uh, say, speaker and headphone designers, not so well-known among the general public and and audio reviewers. If you have a speaker with a bass boost, you will also perceive that it has a treble cut and vice versa. If you hmm. boost the, you can have a speaker with lots of bass, but if you boost the treble up and totally ignore the mid-range. If you do boost the treble up, you may perceive that speaker is balanced. Um and and generally flat, even though it's got this giant bass hump. So there's a lot of complex interactions between different frequency bands and your psychoacoustic perception of them. So, I mean, the people that make like really cheap Bluetooth speakers know this really well because the smart ones will, you know, if their speaker is kind of bass deficient, they'll roll off the top end to make the speaker sound like it's not just bass deficient. They'll they'll cheat it a little bit. Right. And... um, this works in headphones, too. And since you don't have the the acoustical effects of the room kind of averaging stuff out, you really hear all the flaws more. So it is, I think it's much tougher to, to judge a headphone measurement. And also, with speakers, the reference is flat, basically, right? The more it deviates from flat, the worse it is. With headphones, you could come up with a curve for that, but there's differing... You know, there's the Harman curve. There was the old diffuse field reference reference a you know, target curve. Now there's a Knowles target curve which just builds on the Harman curve. There are other people proposing different curves and they all think they're right. Um, so it's it's much tougher to to say what's the correct headphone response. I still I still stick with Harman curve and I think Knowles curve pretty obviously makes a lot of sense too. They're just saying You know, Harman curve only dealt with stuff up to, I think, eight or 10 kilohertz because that was the limits of the headphone measurement gear that was available at the time. Whereas Knowles, you know, now we have headphone measurement gear that goes up to 20 kilohertz and beyond. And Knowles basically said, "Okay, let's build on the Harman research and figure out what these things should sound like above 10 kilohertz. So they're not really changing Harman. They're just adding on to it anyway. Those curves make sense to me. And I kind of stick with those as a reference. But still, the headphone measurement, you know, that you're going to have a big hump at three kilohertz. You're going to have another big hump in the bass. You're going to have stuff going on, a lot of ziggy-zaggy looking stuff going on up between uh, you know, five and, and ten kilohertz. And then stuff above 10 kilohertz that we still, other than the Knowles stuff, the Knowles research, we still haven't really quantified enough. And the Knowles stuff is not. It took it took years for Harmon Curve to really catch on, and for people to start to say, "Yeah, this, you know what, this makes sense." And I think it's going to be a while before we hit Knowles, but you know, before Knowles really kind of takes off and and becomes a norm. But I think the Knowles stuff is essentially correct. Anyway, um, this is where you really start to get. But you get so much confusion. You go on headphone websites and you look at people's interpretations of the measurements. And I remember Tyle Hertzens, who was the guy who, who was the first reviewer to do headphone measurements, to my knowledge. And he he had a ran a site called, uh, well, he used to run a company called Headroom. And then he had a site called um, Interfidelity. Fidelity. And he really, I mean, he was the guy, he he is the, 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 the source, (laughs) he is the source of the river. And, um, and he told me one time, he's like, I can't look at a set of measurements and tell you how a headphone's going to sound. Um, so, but you can tell if the headphone's pretty wacky. I mean, if I see a big boost at one kilohertz, that's going to sound weird. I know that uh, some people may like it. Obviously some people do all those, um, those headphones that were like, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, the ones that were endorsed by like hip hop artists and stuff like the early the, beats the headphones, beats. Yeah, the yeah. early beats and the, Oh, uh, you know, every, uh, the soul by whoever that was. And I think uh, 50 cent had a ludicrous to get soul and 50 cent had his headphones. Everyone had yeah. a set of headphones for a every, while there. Uh, RZA from, um, What's that group? I can't remember. Um, they all and and so many of them had like a big bass hump, a big mid range hump at 1K, and then who knows what above that. But they were they were three hump. I used to call them three hump headphones instead of two hump headphones. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and they were all <laughs> they were oh. all pretty bad. But now a lot of those companies have most of those companies have since you know a lot of them did not own any measurement gear when they came up with their headphones. Their, their first headphones and all those companies to my knowledge have bought measurement gear and have, have hired engineers because there's a lot more good headphone engineers now than there were 10, 15 years ago. And they have kind of straightened their act out. So a lot of those companies actually do make really good products these days. So when people say beats suck, I'm like, none of the people that were involved with the early beats headphones are still with the company. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's owned by yeah. different people. It's yeah Apple. you. you,
2: you You brought
0: up a a really interesting point kind of on the
2: whole spectral balance. And this is, I find, totally missing. And the other day I I was guided to a thread on Audio Science Review where they had taken a bunch of our measurements and said, is this the best loudspeaker in the world? And I'm not going to, because it's the flattest. And I'm not going to um, say which one it is because the the company's refined its design. The speaker measured very flat. It was a very big speaker, very flat. But when you looked at the bass, the bass was trailing off at about 200 hertz and it was a couple dB down to 40 hertz and then it dropped off. Now, you look and say, oh, you know, it's actually pretty flat right up to the top. But that lack of bass, and this is a huge thing, and this is the beats when you brought that up, uh, you can have too much bass. But if you have too little bass, especially at certain frequencies, the product will sound anemic. And I can tell you that, that earphones, and I don't know if they've improved them, but etymotic earphones have too little bass. They've always had, it. I can't, yep. I've got three pair and I can't even listen to these damn things. They're like the tiniest sort of thing. And these speakers that I had, that this company since changed its voicing, I said, you're missing about two to three dB of bass across the whole thing. And that level of bass to treble I look kind of at the flatness of the, the frequency response. You want it kind of flat. But the relative level of, say, 100 hertz to 1 kilohertz to 20 kilohertz, if you're suddenly, uh, your bass is lower than all that, this is not going to have a pleasing sound it is going to sound anemic. It is going to sound light. You're going to say, where is the bass, right? Or you're going to have to put your speakers really close to the wall. Or if you got a pair of those old old Edomatic head earphones, they're going to sound like crap and you're just not going to use them because they just sound anemic. But you got to boost that bass. And one speaker designer recently told me that when they were doing listening tests at NRC back when, if you put a, a peak not a huge peak, but something of a peak at 80 Hertz and the rest of the speaker was well balanced and you were competing against other speakers, that speaker with a peak at 80 Hertz would almost always win.
0: It gave the speaker kick that people wanted to hear.
2: You you find anything like that, Brent?
0: Absolutely. You know, as as Floyd Tool used to always say, bass wins and you know, a little, little extra bass can, I've, I've, I've done a whole ton of blind listening tests with outside people. I still do them all the time as much as I possibly can. And I really find that, yeah, a little extra bass is, is usually will help you win. And certainly absolutely a subjectively full sound stuff that sounds thin and stuff that sounds boomy loses there are a few listeners that like boomy but
2: not many but i would say if you're going to air to slightly too much bass or slightly too little
1: bass i would air to slightly too much oh i would too yeah absolutely so something and you both have kind of mentioned it in in different things that you've said too much bass too little bass too tiny all this what about the the actual variance between different copies of a speaker like and and I think, Doug, you mentioned left and right speaker. I'm sure between left and right headphone or even earphone, there's differences. Yeah, here's the thing. You get these measurement guys. I keep going back to audio science review because you
2: saw a lot of crazy stuff. Oh my God, these all kind of um, look the same. They should sound the same. Hell, this is not true. A speaker is a three-dimensional thing putting sound out in a room. I mean that the way it projects. And here's the dirty little secret in audio. Companies have a lot of trouble getting the left and right speaker of an identical pair exactly the same i don't know what's the variance which you say i know that i know this brand from visiting many manufacturers some of the worst ones it's plus or minus 3 db uh, left and right is their window now the best ones will be plus or minus 1 db you yeah. know that, but they're they're struggling to get that into that we're talking across the frequency band and you'll see when you go to companies they'll have uh, an upper line and a lower line and then they have what this thing measured and did this thing exceed the upper line or go lower (laughs) lower like did it did did it get out of the the gate and that is a huge thing to me and so we're talking about channel imbalance in electronics and why diego measures the left right um are they the same output right and when you have those old potentiometers often they weren't you could have a db to three difference depending where you were on the volume control well you probably got to Uh, On a really good set of speakers, you've got a dB difference at various things. And on a really, and this was a a problem with early offshore manufacturing. I was talking to one manufacturer, they didn't understand acoustic testing at the output. They were just putting speakers into boxes. There were huge mismatches, huge. So the variance between speakers can be identical, speakers can be huge. So even a subtle difference in design can produce an
1: enormous uh, change in sound. Do you ever measure the same, like, do you ever measure the left speaker and then the right speaker separately and then average those results? No, I never average them. We'll look if they're in, um, in alignment.
2: Yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, we had one speaker from a big company that didn't have its QC down and the left and right speakers were so far from flat
1: and so different. You couldn't tell which one was right. And they didn't know either. And how does that change in headphones? Because I'm assuming headphones will probably have the same variance,
0: headphones and earphones. So with headphone, unlike with speakers, with headphones, the norm is to measure both channels. The problem you get is, you know, the the placement of the headphone on the artificial ear is going to be different for both of those channels, right? So some of the measurement is influenced by your placement. So what I do is I measure the right, because weirdly with headphones sort of the right is the standard as opposed to the left with most audio um mm-hmm. i measure the right first and then i measure the left and move the left around to see how closely i can get it to match the right interesting and, for know, the placement. Measure, yeah for the placement but okay. i you know so and i, I measure the right the sort of norm which i don't do but the norm uh is to do I think five different placements and you move it around a little bit each time. And then you average those placements. My thought is since you, when you put headphones on, you move them to where they're comfortable and then you start playing them. Um, I'm not sure if it's relevant to, to measure the headphone with it off, you know, the right axis. So, I just What I do is I just run a bunch of measurements and sort of see what the the characteristic response of the headphone is. Like, what is the curve that I most normally hit when I'm moving this around? And, you know, if I get a lot of bass in one... I mean, bass has a lot to do with it. If you get a good seal, you'll get good bass. I mean, if you are not getting bass in one position, then you didn't get a good seal in that position, right? So, with headphones and earphones, I... Generally speaking, I mean, it's pretty hard to find two that match well. The problem is you you can't be 100% certain if that's because of, the, of a manufacturing defect or if it's because of your measurement. And that's where you have to start to be really careful. I have found some where I'll say in the, in the measurements, like, look, I did everything I could... And yet there's still a huge mismatch. There's no way I could figure out how to measure these things where it wasn't a huge mismatch. Well, let me see if you what you think of
2: this. Because I'm going to put anybody who's neurotic like I am that needs absolute symmetry between the left and right or it drives them absolutely crazy. I started thinking about this when one headphone manufacturer on their active headphones showed me, you know, uh, they had a battery chamber on one side, right? That held double A batteries. Mm-hmm. One side. Yeah. Now... The driver is not only what you hear, you hear the, the the cabinet volume on your headphones. In other words, the enclosure mm-hmm. of the headphones. And they had to compensate because they've got batteries on one side. They've got reduced enclosure volume. So they had to acoustically compensate to make a close match. Same with these active speakers. It drives me yeah. crazy. You've got a left and right speaker and one let's say I want the company to design both the left and the right identically because, well, in one speaker, the master speaker, we've put all the electronics and reduced the cabinet volume. I don't know by how much, but you've got all the electronics on one speaker. Now you've got a mismatch in cabinet volume, possibly. Did you compensate for that or did you just kind of go with it? So sometimes, Brent, when I saw those headphone things and they're powered, you know, they're self-powered headphones, say. Mm -hmm do they have not a manufacturing defect, but actually a design defect where they did not compensate well for the differing
0: requirements of the left-hand side for the electronics and that sort of thing? We, we That's a good question. We used to see that. And I remember there was a, very popular set of Audio Technica noise canceling headphones. They were kind of a cosmetic copy of whatever the Bose was at the time, the QC something, and um, and they were you know like pretty decent sounding headphones, and they had you know okay noise canceling, and they were like a hundred bucks versus two fifty or three for the Bose. And but I measured them, and I found that yeah, they and this is back in like. 2010 they did not compensate decades ago fairly recently yeah Yeah. um but but uh that's a long time ago in headphones (laughs) but um they clearly didn't compensate for the differing volumes of the of the you know the side with the batteries and the side with the the, because you know amps don't headphone amps the head, the amps built into headphones don't take up a lot of space, but the batteries do. And they clearly didn't compensate for that. And I've seen that one or two or three times. The interesting thing though, is I found with headphones, unless there is an accepting cases where there's an extreme difference in the uh, left and right, which I found with really, really, really cheap earphones, like off-brand $10 stuff. If you've got a, peak at one kilohertz in one and a dip at one kilohertz in another, boy, that image is going to pull to whatever that side is with the Mm -hmm. one kilohertz peak, right? But generally speaking, if it's just a a mild bass mismatch, which is usually what it is, you don't hear it. Hmm. So I kind of don't, worry too much about that. It has to be pretty extreme. I think in speakers, I actually I know from experience, in speakers you would hear it a lot more easily. Cause I I have heard that where a speaker was one out of a pair was defective and uh and you know maybe the the mid-range driver sensitivity was uh, was inconsistent between the two and one of them was putting out a couple decibels left less mid range and boy the image just boom pulls right over to the side of the of the one with more midrange. So, but yeah, I I don't think it's a huge concern with headphones, but since everybody who measures headphones, to my knowledge, measures that, then I think... It's improved. Yeah, it's improved and... It's, and you know, headphones have improved a lot and the headphone manufacturing has improved a lot. So. Speaker, speakers on the other hand, I'll tell you this, they're pretty
2: ugly things on the inside. When you look at the stuffing, you're bolting things on, you've got whatever variants in the drivers, you're putting a lot of mechanical, physical things together and hoping for the best. It's not as precise as a little kind of, kind of, Headphones are much more, uh, almost like electronics, much more medical grade <laughs> in a certain sense of the yeah, manufacturing. I, I think yeah, you yeah. get
0: a lot more. Certainly, once you get into the boutique speakers that are made more or less by hand, uh, I have noticed when reviewing speakers that there were quite a few I've measured where the, you know the measurements were kind of wacky and and you know what we heard was kind of weird, and it turned out the factory had installed the wrong amount of stuffing for that speaker. Yeah. interesting.
1: Now, is there ways that the end user at home could measure their stuff to kind of see if there's any striking differences or even like if they believe there's a mismatch,
0: a drastic one, be able to kind of confirm that um, at home? Yeah, well, there's... Okay, so on headphones, there's a thing called the mini DSP ears, which is... Uh, you know, most headphone measurement rigs now, I mean, the one I have is, oh, I think, and this is just for one ear, although you get, you know, you get right and left ears for it, typically. Uh, it's going to run you something like 8,000 bucks, I think. Oh. That's the cheapest thing you can buy. Um but they someone came out with many DSP came out with a thing called the ears which is a really cheap and dirty headphone measurement rig um, it's very primitive it kind of works you can use it for certain measurements and kind of do okay with it uh, it is not too bad for measuring over ears and the the sort of to me the killer app for it is there are, Headphone enthusiasts that like to get their over ear headphones and, and tweak them and, you know, change the, change the, the, uh, cavity, change the, uh, what's stuffed into the cavity, maybe mess with the porting, who knows what, um, and for them, that's a good device because then they can, is it an absolutely correct measurement that's comparable to my measurements or Sean, All's measurements or any, anybody else who has decent gear? No, but you can look at it and go, this sounds too bright to me. I think I'll change the whatever in yeah. the hope of making it less bright and you can run the measurement and go, Oh no, that didn't, that made it more bright. I'm going to get rid of that. And so you can use it as a, as a sort of tweak development tool. I, I wouldn't use it to judge a set of headphones and certainly for earphones, it's useless because it's just got a, this sort of rubber, it's just a little rubber canal that goes in there. That's it, That, doesn't really work and it's also too small to fit most earphones um i will say on speakers though I, i'm gonna i'm of the opinion that people can do meaningful measurements they usually don't but um because they usually don't read about it but there, there are techniques you can use but i'll throw that to doug for a while and see what he says
2: well yeah i agree with you you can you can do meaningful measurements you know even using room correction software i was looking at uh, anthem room correction I was using it on a system. I had a pair of stereo system, not home theater system. And it takes measurements in a variety of positions. And I was careful of the microphone and I could see, okay, actually the left and right are measuring very similarly. And the differences are probably the room itself because it's a slight mismatch on the sides of the rooms and stuff. So you can, if you understand, and you can can measure a speaker, like Brent said, if you know what you're doing if you're careful and that's the key to say okay is this speaker am i getting the right response even if the m- measurement itself is not indicative of the actual response of the speaker but if you're miking identically two speakers even if you're not miking for the best frequency response spot but if you're miking identically and and the plots match and let's say you're doing it near field then it's it's going to be say that the speakers are matched yeah you're sure. going to get the same result. In other words, whatever result you get in providing you're doing it. And that's, I'll tell you, that's the advantage of we have in NRC. When I walk into the chamber, it's the same every time I yeah. walk in. And this is not the same. So I can, we can take an old speaker that we have there. And unless the speaker suddenly broke, we plop it on the, on the thing. And we don't have weather conditions to deal with and stuff. It's an enclosed environment, an anechoic room. It's temperature controlled and all that stuff and it measures identically. I kind of have that advantage of doing that. We put the microphone in this position where we did before for this speaker, and is it the same? And that is an advantage when we go to NRC, unless one of the amplifiers breaks, and that happens. It happened a couple of years ago. The distortion analyzer broke the other day and sent us into a panic until we could fix it. But the I take a batch down there, one by one, we plop it on the platform. We decide where the acoustic axis is. In other words, where we put the microphone, where we measure it, and the environment around it is consistent in an anechoic environment like that. Brent does a lot of outdoor stuff. You Maybe you could talk about that because I, I'm at an advantage that way just in terms of ease of measurement.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to say, though, that you can... I, I've So people, a lot of enthusiasts try to do measurements in-room because, you know, you can go buy a measurement mic now for a hundred bucks or something and yeah,
1: inexpensive um, to get into it. Yeah. And use, pretty use, good. use,
0: yeah. And use room EQ wizard and it's, it's fine. The problem that people have is, you know, I've seen people, I've seen reviewers even like stick a microphone one foot in front of the speaker and think that somehow they're going to eliminate the effects of the room that way, which it absolutely doesn't. Um, cause you know, I can prove that easily by taking a quasi anechoic measurement. Um, and then, Doing the in-room measurement, you'll see even at one foot, no, the room still has a huge effect. But the smart way to do it is to do an average of maybe six different in-room measurements. Because that will, you know, as we all know, in in you know, the room changes the sound, and the room changes the sound differently depending on where you are in the room. So if you average about six measurements, you get a pretty good idea of what the speaker's doing in the room. And you can start to see if it has some kind of consistent problems that are that are going to be things that that people hear and it's going to look a little different from a good anechoic measurement which will be an anechoic measurement of a really good speaker is going to look pretty flat whereas this is going to look kind of downward tilted in the treble um, it's going to look like the predicted room... Ideally, it should look like the predicted room response in what's called the CTA 2034 standard, You know where they take a lot of anechoic measurements or quasi-anechoic, and then they predict the in-room response. And so you should have something that looks kind of like that. But that's a pretty good measurement to tell you roughly what your speaker is doing in the room. You can... Now... If you want to get fancier, you can buy a thing called an OmniMic, which Dayton Audio makes. And I think it's 300 bucks for the microphone and the software. It's based on... They actually licensed a really good uh, speaker measurement system called Praxis for that. And they basically just created a consumer version of it. And it works pretty well. When I was consulting, I set up a couple of my clients with uh, QC systems based on, on that. That were you know reasonably easy to operate. And you can do pretty much most of the major speaker measurements you want to do, you can do with that and you can do them to a, a pretty good degree. If you do them outside, you know, you really have to elevate the speaker up on a pretty high stand, like the higher, the better. And the, you know, the further the speaker is away from anything that obstructs it. If you had a, if you had a 40 foot high stand and you had a quiet field and there was nothing else in the field. Um, and you yourself were at least 40 feet away from the speaker and you ran the measurement. It would basically be the same as an anechoic measurement. Interesting. A little y- noise. You
1: describing that is how they, uh, it just brings back this memory of how they actually measure the radar signature of airplanes it is basically that they put it up on a giant stand in the middle of an open field. And that's how they measure the radar. Oh, signal. cool makes a total sense right like you're just trying to eliminate the amount of uh, reflections and stuff that are going to bounce back into that um into that object let yeah, me tell so, you a funny story oh sorry Brent, but, but, the,
0: the, the, the higher you can put it up on a stand the better i mean my measurement stand i think is six feet I think, no, I think it's six and a half feet and, um, and it's as high as I can reach without getting a ladder. So, and then I have a really high mic stand and so I'm getting the stuff up in there and I'm getting pretty good measurements down to, you know, 250 Hertz. And then you, you use various different techniques to measure the base. You can close mic the woofer in the port. You can do a ground plane measurement where you just put the microphone on the ground and you run the, the base measurement and you, you, uh, smooth it. There's, there's different. And you, then you spice the two together and you get a result that is not as good and reliable as an anechoic measurement, but it's pretty good. It's good if you know what you're doing.
2: Yeah. When you describe the field um, years ago, I was at this very good designers design shop and he owned a farm and he measured the speakers propped up on a stand just like that blowing nobody around blowing out into the field you know that sort of thing and he ran a sweep and in the middle of the sweep you hear "Mm." (laughs) 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 then he said yeah
0: then we have to do it again when that happens True story. True story. That's awesome. Well, I have to say that a lot of the the better speaker measurement stuff has ways of gating that out. I remember I had a, I had the old LMS speaker measurement system for years that was invented in the late '80s, I think, and it had uh, second order filters around. So if you were measuring at one k the mic was filtered with second order filters with a 1K center point. And I remember my neighbor started using his leaf blower. And I'm just like, oh God, well, I guess I got to wait to do the measurements. But I thought, I wonder how much this affects it. And so I ran the measurement while he was using the leaf blower. When he stopped, I ran it again, no difference. So there way. are ways. And then, and then of course, if hmm. you run multiple sweeps, instead of just going bloop, you go bloop bloop, 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 boop, and you run like eight of them, you're going to reduce the noise by uh, like 12 decibels. Hmm, So there are lots of techniques that you can do to improve those sort of measurements. And some people are really good at it and some people are not. And it it takes a long time. I mean, I know like John Atkinson at Stereophile uses that and his technique has... Been substantially refined over the years, as was mine. Sometimes by copying what John did, Um, (laughs) and uh, you know, it's like uh, you can get really good at that. I mean, Vance Dickison, who wrote the Loudspeaker Design Cookbook, he does quasi-anechoic, and you know, he's been in anechoic chambers. He's used them, but he doesn't have one at home, so he does his measurements quasi-anechoic, and they're dead on. He knows what he's doing. He used to teach speaker measurements. (laughs) And I guess
1: one kind of follow up when I'm thinking about this, um, even the published measurements, I'm going to say measurements, not just speaker or whatever that you folks do, these should technically be the second time measurements are getting done. Like the manufacturer should be measuring at their establishment to begin with and having that as kind of a... Oh, and that's, that's a whole podcast on its own. And it's really the
2: manufacturers use measurements for quality control, uh, yeah. For end product, but also all the way through the design process, and that's really the key. They they're measuring all the time through every facet. The good ones,
0: the good yeah, ones. And, and and you know you don't know, you don't know how up the manufacturers are on the latest measurement techniques. I, I wrote, I, I mentioned CTA twenty ten subwoofer measurements. I wrote that manual. Um, mostly because at the time i was consulting a lot on soundbars and i did that and this is you know 10 years ago i wrote that manual i think and um, i was consulting a lot on soundbars and doing these these measurements and none of the manufacturers had any idea what i was talking about and i'm talking about you know chinese odms right the the people that actually manufacture the sound bars by mm-hmm. all the you know the 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 famous <laughs> all the famous brands that you see all on all the brands bars. we know they're made right. by this company yes yeah. they're made by other companies in in uh, in China and Taiwan and so those companies had no idea what i was talking about and so i wrote the manual really for them. And it turned out to be a good thing for the industry because the other people who were doing the measurements kind of jumped in there and made suggestions. And we kind of got it into like a, something that that barely exists, sadly, in the world of audio measurement is like a good general practices manual that shows you how to do the measurement, uh, which boy, there's just not, I mean, there are a couple, Joe Diapolito did a book on it, Oh God, 15, 15, 20 years ago. And there are books, you know, the new edition of the loudspeaker design cookbook has a lot of stuff on measurement, including some sort of tutorial things on how to do it, but there's not a lot of really good information on there around there about how to measure. You kind of have to read and look at what other people did and copy it and, um, make your own revisions and hope for the best. But you know, and you, if you do that, you will know a lot more about audio than the people who haven't gone through that. <laughs> I guarantee
1: that makes a lot of sense. And that brings me to my uh, question that I try and ask anyone or everyone that comes on this podcast. Uh, and I'm going to direct it at you, Brent, which is outside of work for pure enjoyment what Mm -hmm. is the soundtrack to your life what do you like to listen to
0: well i'm a jazz musician so i listen and and have been kind of off and on for my whole life and so i listen honest to god i get the latest edition of downbeat used to be jazz times which i wrote for but jazz times got bought by some uh uh some dicey characters who fired all the writers and didn't pay them. It's a, it was such a great magazine. Not now, but so I read downbeat and I look at all the jazz reviews in there and I, I kind of go like, Oh, I should listen to that. I listen to that. And now with, you know, with all, all the streaming services, you can just go listen to all that. So it could be, Oh, you know, oh, just one that sticks in my mind is a, a few months ago, uh, Zakir Hussain, who's the famed percussionist, uh, mostly tabla player, uh, came out with an album. No, I'm sorry. It was, I'm not sure who the leader was on it. It was Zakir Hussain, the tabla player, Charles Lloyd, the, the tenor sax player, and Julian Lodge, the guitar player. And it's just the three of them kind of wailing away. And uh, it's, pretty awesome oh that's awesome can i throw uh one in here yeah okay it came from sean
2: olive because i'm gonna leave with this parting thought measurements are hugely valuable otherwise we wouldn't be spending all this money on them and i wouldn't be lugging speakers to nrc for almost 25 years but listening's key and sean olive just posted about tracy chapman's fast car which i know brent uses too was one Mm -hmm. of the original tracks we i say posted on linkedin and Sean Olive was involved in NRC research, and now he's with Harmon. Tracy Chapman's Fast Car was one of the original tracks we used to test loudspeakers at the National Research Council of Canada in 1988, we continue to use it today. Why? Because it's one of the most sensitive test signals to hear problems in loudspeakers and headphones. And then he goes on with more. In other words, it's a great demo track, and people should listen. They should look at the measurements, but they should listen to the music and
1: that's key. love it well with that thank you uh both doug and brent for coming on and uh giving us something to talk about today that was awesome thanks thanks jordan and thanks brent for being here again it's really appreciated
0: well thanks it's great to chat with you guys take care everyone all the best okay bye